Go ahead and start then. All right, welcome everyone. We are coming up here on, we're now week six of uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 3, uh, verse uh, 14, but let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for your grace to us this day, for watching over us, for supplying our needs, and for your kindness to us in preserving us to this very hour and giving us an eternal hope. And we're thankful, Father, for that. And therefore, we want to seek to understand your will and your ways. And so we want to understand the scriptures and the books of the Bible. And we pray that through our study of 1 Corinthians, we'll grow in our understanding of you and your will for us and how we should live in the day in which we live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 3, and we're finishing up uh, this first issue in the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, we pick up another issue that was a problem in the church at Corinth. This one is some differences of opinion, divisions, uh, uh, dissensions within the church, different, you know, people um, have different views about things, and especially the gospel. And that can be very, very troubling. Um, so if you, um, if, you, if you get the message wrong, then lots of things are going to be wrong. And he said that the fact that they are trying to interpret the gospel in light of their culture. They're bringing in things from Greek philosophy and they're into the understanding of the gospel. This is, a, as we said, in 118 through 3.4, a misunderstanding of the gospel message. And this has led to problems about leadership, who they're going to follow, how they tend to put too much emphasis on human leaders and so forth. And so Paul is trying to explain uh, the problem here. And he says, first of all, in 3, 5 through 23, that these human leaders are important, but they are God's workmen. And that's an apostrophe S, that's a possessive, in the sense that they work for God. And he'll bring out the fact they don't really work for you. They serve you, but they're not, they're really, they really are responsible to God. That's like people like he... Paul and Apollos. And so he makes a direct statement of that in 3.5, you know, and, and um, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? They're only servants through whom you came to believe. So that's their role. And he illustrates that how that works with a couple of illustrations. He uses an illustration from farming, and he says uh, the church is like a farm, like a field that you grow things, and the church is, you're growing crops, the church is like a bunch of crops, and Paul and, and Apollos are out there, they're, 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 they're working in the field. And Paul planted the church, and then Apollos came along, and he taught people and so forth. But the, God, God is the one who made the church grow. He's the one who, 
who without him nothing would happen. So they're, <clears throat> they're giving too much glory, too much emphasis to human leaders here. Now, as we'll see when we get to chapter 4, it's a little bit of a problem because, as I said last time, remember, human leaders are important in God's work. God has appointed, you know, pastors, teachers, and so forth. And Paul will get to chapter 4 and he'll, he'll have to reestablish his authority because he is an authoritative figure. He does have the right to command their obedience. He is an apostle. But, you know, in relation to God, <laughs> he's nothing in that sense, you know. So they've got to figure, he's got to explain that. So he had this illustration from building. And he said in verse 9, we are God's, uh, you are God's field, you're God's building. And he used the illustration from the field. Then he used the illustration from building. And he compared the church to like someone building a building. And uh, this building he kind of equates with like a temple. And of course in Corinth they're familiar with temples. Remember I said they were... Archaeologists have found about 26 temples or sacred places. So people knew all about pagan temples. And so he says, here's the true temple in Corinth, and that's the church. And he starts again in verse 10, and he says, you know, I laid the foundation, just like I planted the church. And so people are going to build on that foundation. And that includes Paulus, but it includes people in the church. And it includes all of us. We're all sort of building on the church. What we do in the church is constructing the church. We're building the church. And uh, he says it's important to build with the right kind of material. And that's the gospel. That's not the, that's the you know, you can build with the wrong things. So I was thinking about this. You know, you can take, for instance, uh, like the Roman Catholic Church. Obviously, the Roman Catholic Church, its origins go back to the early church. People will often say, when do you call it the Roman Catholic Church? Well, of course, Catholic just means universal. And so when they say the Roman Catholic Church, it just means we're the universal church. Well, we believe you and I are part of the universal church, the body of Christ. We're the, we're the community Catholic Church in that sense. We're part of the universal church. And uh, when the Reformers came along, the Reformation, they never called the Roman Catholic Church the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> they called it the Roman Church because they didn't want to call it the Catholic because they were saying we're, they were saying, they said the Catholic Church was a false church by then. It didn't present the gospel anymore. It was false in that sense. And so it's possible to start out in the first century, the second century, and then corruption can come in. And by the time of Reformation, by the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had become totally corrupt and didn't have the gospel anymore. And that's what ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation and the formation of new churches because you couldn't reform. Luther wanted to reform the church, but he couldn't because they would not, believe the truths of the gospel, justification by faith alone, scripture alone. They didn't believe, the Roman Catholic Church does not believe in scripture alone or Christ alone or grace alone. They don't believe in any of those things. Those five solas that came out of the Reverend, they don't believe in any of those things. They deny all of those things. Um, so it's possible to take 
the true church that starts in Jerusalem and corrupt it, as the Roman Catholic Church unfortunately is today, and end up with something that's not genuine. And that's what he's talking about here. It's possible to start a church, you know, and people have started churches, and then it can become corrupted and not be a true gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church anymore. So we have to all be careful as a body to make sure that we stay true to the message of the gospel and in our, what we're doing here in this church, we're building uh, the true church, a true church, a genuine church. And so he's, he, he talks about there's two kinds you can building materials. You can build with things that'll perish. There's coming a time when God will judge all this and he will show what's true and what's false. And you can build with gold and silver and costly stones, that is, building materials that last, marble and granite, things like that, that'll last a long time. It's also possible to build with wood, hay, or straw that will sh won't last in any kind of judgment. Fire is just used here as a way to judge things, the way to, to determine what's perishable and what's not perishable. So he's, he says you need to be careful about how you build. And so in verse 14, where we left off last time, he says, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet he will be, yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. So the point here is possibly for a true Christian to go astray. So I say here in verses 14 and 15, Paul spells out the results of the testing by fire. Those who stay with the gospel, as Paul preached it, who build the church in Corinth with gold, silver, costly stones, will see their work survive the test. They'll receive their reward. But those who persist in pursuing worldly wisdom, who are building with wood, hay, and straw, as Paul sees it, will see their work consumed and they will themselves will suffer loss. Oh, their loss, Paul is quickly to qualify, doesn't refer to their salvation. Uh, now, it's possible you have false teachers in the, who are in a church who are not really saved, but it's possible for saved people to go astray. It's possible for all of us to do things that are not really true to Scripture. Um, now, he says that we're going to receive a reward for our work in the church. Um, and it's not clear from this passage or anywhere else what exactly that reward is. In chapter 4 and verse 5, he'll mention the reward of praise, but I don't think that exhausts the possibilities here, the fullness of God's reward for his saints. Uh, so we don't know for sure all that's involved there. So it's possible, as I've said, to try to build the church with every imaginable human system that is built on merely human wisdom. wisdom, It can be philosophy, pop psychology, you know, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, I mean, what have you. It's all, you can bring all kinds of stuff into the church, you know, that's not really the gospel and not really the way the, the church should be built or the message should be given. But he's saying at the final judgment, things will be shown for what they are. Um, 
whether things have the character of Christ in them or they don't, whether they're gospel or not. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Verse 16 and 17 carries the building imagery a step further by specifying the kind of building that he and others have been erecting, namely God's temple in Corinth. Paul begins with a question, do you not know who yourselves are? It's clear that from their current behavior, they don't seem to know, don't know, or at least have not seriously considered the implications of who they are as God's people in Corinth. So he's using the imagery of the church as a temple, as I said, which would be easily understood by the Corinthians as practicing pagans. They've spent their whole lives going to temples, pagan temples. But Paul is saying the one true temple really in Corinth is the church, the church at Corinth. And they became that new temple by the fact that the true God, God's Spirit, dwells in your midst. Now, the NIV has tried to bring out something here with their translation. Notice those words, in your midst. The ESV has the more literal, like the King James Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Uh, The the point here is that Paul is talking about the Spirit indwelling the church, not indwelling the believer. Now, it's true that the church, the, 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 the Spirit indwells each one of us. And it's also true that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul will say that in chapter 6. Don't you know that your bodies, you and I as individual Christians, are temples of the Holy Spirit? And so in chapter 6, he's saying, he's talking about immoral conduct. You shouldn't engage in immoral conduct because your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he's talking about here. (laughs) The use here are plural. The use there are... Here he says, don't you know that your bodies are that your body, when he says, uh, which, who is in you, when he says, verse 19, who is in you, uh, 619, the Holy Spirit who is in you, that's a singular you. Uh, my wife and I were just discussing something yesterday and I was saying, yeah, that's the problem with you. The you in English can be singular or plural. You know, it doesn't, we don't have the, the you. Uh, as we used to have, like the vow and the, you know, so forth. But um, so the you in 619 is singular. He's talking about individual Christians. But the you here in the ESV dwells in you. That's plural. And the NIV is trying to bring that out by saying, he's trying to emphasize it's in your midst. It's, it's the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your church, you know. They should have just put in you all. Yeah, well, maybe so. <laughs> you all. <laughs> I don't know if you all would still, would people still think you all is that? All y'all? Uh, yeah, I, you know, you still might think of all Christians, you might think of, you know, each one of you, you know, that's the problem. It's not each one of you, the point is, it's in the church corporately. And Pastor Ken, if you've been here long enough, I've been here a few years, he's, I know he's mentioned that at least a few times, but, you know, it's hard to remember those things. You say so many things in a sermon, they, don't, they, they kind of fly by you, you know, but I know he's mentioned this point. A couple of two or three times, you know, but you don't really necessarily pick up on it, you know, that there's a difference between chapter three and chapter six. 
because they both use the temple imagery, but one is the body's the temple. Here the church is the temple. And so uh, the Spirit dwells in the church. It's like a temple. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, that's the church, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you, you together are that temple, the church together. So verse 15 spoke of some whose works were burned up, yet, yet they themselves are saved. Now Paul speaks of some who destroy God's temple. So it's possible to have people in a church who are just mixed up. They're just Christians who are, they're just doing things wrong, but they're saved people. They're just, you know, they're on the wrong path. You can have churches go that way, but it's also possible to have unsaved people, which means that the true gospel of Christ is rejected and as a result, the church is ruined. I mean, there are what we call liberal churches, churches that have denied the faith. Those mainline churches I talked about, many of them in their doctrine. We talked about the PCUSA that wanted to get rid of wrath. You know, we don't want that wrath. We don't like that uh, idea. Uh, well, if you don't like wrath, you don't like grace because we need grace because there's wrath because God is going to punish sin and we need a substitute. So Paul says God will take care of those people eventually. Well, then we have a conclusion here in 18 through 23. He says, don't deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age. You should become fools so that you may become wise. So those who persist in pursuing wisdom, who are thereby destroying, not building the church, are self-deceived, Paul says. Therefore, Paul urges that they abandon their pursuit of worldly wisdom in favor of God's foolishness. Remember, the gospel, he said, is, appears to be foolish to the unsaved, which is really true wisdom. So the point here is that, as we've seen and as we'll see, the Corinthians think of themselves as wise and they have knowledge. You'll say in chapter 8, verse 2, you'll talk about how they think of themselves as having all knowledge and knowing things. In chapter 14, you'll talk about how they think of themselves as spiritual people and so forth. Uh, and so they have a lot of false ideas. And Paul says you can only become wise by rejecting worldly wisdom and focusing on the truth of the gospel. You've got to reject the world's viewpoint on all kinds of issues, on all, a variety of issues. And that's a tough thing. In our age, we have to do the same thing. We've got to examine the Bible, see what the Bible teaches, and if that's contrary to the world, we've got to reject that. You know. Now, Admittedly, Christians in time have um, gone astray. <laughs> they have seen things in the world and they've said, oh, that's terrible, and they've rejected them, and they really weren't a problem. <laughs> when I was coming along, uh, we used to have real narrow belts. This was back in the 60s. So a belt like I've got right now, which is, you know, most belts are kind of wide now, we had these really thin belts. I don't know if, if you, you remember that, Larry. These just, oh, they're all thin. Well, you know, when, when the belts went big, the people in my church said, this is worldly. This is just terrible stuff, man. They got these wide belts, you know. You know. Same thing with ties. We had the narrow ties, and when the ties got wide, well, that's just wickedness. 
That's wicked stuff, you know. So you can, you know, you can, you can, you, you got to be sure that what you're rejecting. That's right. That's really wicked, you know. But so there are, you know, you got to be careful that what you're rejecting from the world is really unspiritual and ungodly kind of things and not just differences and changes in culture. You know, things change. Uh, and we got to make sure that what we're rejecting, what, what's really going on, that is, make sure it's really wrong. But the Corinthians were obviously on the wrong side of these issues. Uh, verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, and as is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Paul now gives the theological basis for the preceding exhortation, plus his scriptural support. The way of stating it is the reverse of 118 through 25. There he set out to demonstrate that the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, the gospel, is foolishness to the world. Here he says the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The same point is made, but now in terms of the divine perspective, which is you know, the one that really counts. He cites uh, Job 5.13 here uh, and Psalm 94.11. He catches the wise and their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So uh, God has always regarded human efforts to understand His ways as foolish. When man tries to understand God's ways apart from God's revelation, he gets into idolatry. <laughs> I mean, all kinds of people are religious, but they go into false ideas because they make up God out of their own thinking. So the, these Scripture citations are designed to show the futility of the wise, that the wisdom is, you know, their wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. Verse 21a, so then no more boasting about human leaders. With a final emphatic so then, Paul brings the present arguments to its conclusion. The words no more boasting about human leaders directly addresses the appeal of 110 through 12, where it's the, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. So no one should be saying that, he's saying. That's to base your confidence on mere mortals. Paul will now direct their focus to the Creator. Direct your following to the Creator. Verse 21b, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Paul now gives a theological basis for his statement, no more boasting about human leaders. Why not? Because all things are yours. These words are based on the final theological conclusion of verse 23 in which the statement is repeated and the ultimate basis is added, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. With these words, Paul completely transforms their slogans. They say, I follow Paul. A little translation would be, I am of Paul, I belong to Paul. With the analogy of the field, Paul changed that to you are of God. You belong to God. Now he makes the further transformation, all things are yours including Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. So there's a sense, it's what he's saying is, all these teachers are a gift from God to believers. These leaders are yours. They're, they're God's gift to you. You don't belong to them. See, that's the wrong... They belong to you in the sense they're God's gift to you. Um, and more than that, the world or life or death you know, this, this is all 
given to us, ultimately. Um, not all human leaders... Um, um, how would I say that? So not, not only are human leaders for the... What I'm saying, not only human leaders a gift for the Corinthians, but also... Uh, everything else, that God has created this universe ultimately for our benefit. Um, remember Paul says in Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for the good of the lows for those who love Him. And God's working everything out ultimately for our good who have been called according to His purpose. Uh, and he's not saying everything in life is pleasant for the Corinthians or for us. Um, but everything in life, these teachers, everything that happens is for our benefit ultimately. So their, their focus is wrong here, Paul says. Your, 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 your allegiance is wrong. Verse 23, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. These final words serve as the ultimate theological basis for what has proceeded. It's not that all things are yours in some selfish, independent, and self-centered sense. They are yours because you belong to Christ, and all things are His. So we don't enjoy these promises inherently because of who we are, but the promises are granted to us because we are in Christ, and Christ is at God's right hand. Well, now Paul says human leaders are directly responsible to God alone. So I say here, given the nature of the exhortations we've just seen in 3.18 through 23, we may wonder why Paul feels it necessary to continue talking about servants of Christ. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, as servants of Christ, he talks about. The Corinthians' misunderstanding of the gospel in the church and the role of teachers has now been addressed. But at the heart of much of this is the attitude of many toward Paul himself. These people are not simply for Apollos or Peter. Some of them at least are decidedly anti-Paul. Maybe that's a little strong, but you know, when you say, I am, I am of Paul, I belong, I belong to Apollos, you know, it's, there's a question about you know, where does Paul fit into this? <laughs> so they're for Apollos and somewhat against Paul. Uh, and we know from the epistle they are, there's a sense in which they're rejecting his authority to some degree. They're questioning his authority. And that really comes out in 2 Corinthians. Uh, so this presents Paul with a dilemma. On the one hand, he's got to reassert his authority. I mean, he's got to command them. He's an apostle. They need to listen to him. I mean, he can't say, Go read Romans, because he hadn't written Romans. <laughs> There's no scripture for them to read except the Old Testament. You know, They've got to listen to him. He's an apostle. He's there uh, to give God's truth to them. Um, so I say on the one hand, he's got to reassert his authority. His understanding of the gospel is the only way to understand it. So here, you know, when we say we want to understand the gospel, we have the final authority, the ultimate authority, the final, the scripture. 
We have the New Testament scripture and the Old Testament. Well, they got the Old Testament, but they don't, they're in a process of re revelation going on. And they're learnt, you know, new truths are coming. And the apostles are there to, to instruct them. So they've got to listen to him if they want the truth. Um, but I say, on the other hand, he must do this without blunting the force of the argument to this point that is contingent as to the servant role of, of an apostle. So on the one hand, he's a servant. <laughs> God is in control of things. But on the other hand, he is a representative. He's an apostle, and so they have to listen to him. So he's got to reassert his authority here. And that's the same thing we have in the church today. Human leaders do have authority, you know, so there's that tension there. Paul begins in 4, 1 through 5 by making an application of the servant model and showing how, it relates, how that relates to their treatment of him. He changes images from farm to household and insists that he's God's servant, not theirs. And they are not allowed to judge another's servant. Paul says that the Corinthians are to regard him and Apollos as servants. But his new point is that although he belongs to them since he's Christ's servant for them, <clears throat> he belongs in the sense that he's there to serve them. He's not accountable to them. So he's there to serve them, but he's not accountable to them, which is an interesting dilemma. What is required of household servants is faithfulness, and only the master of the house can make that determination. Verse 1, this then is how you ought to regard us. So, okay, how, we're wondering about that, Paul. You said you're a servant, and uh, we have been following too much emphasis on you know, men and so forth. Of course, they're following these philosophers outside of the church and all that. How then you should regard us? You should regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So we're the ones who are entrusted with the Word of God for you. So you've got to listen to us. This is not an entirely new topic. Paul's going back to the point of 3, 5 through 9. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas do, and belong, do indeed belong to them, but that's to be understood in the light of 3, 9 where Paul has asserted that they first belong to God. This, he says, is how people ought to regard us, as servants of Christ. In 3, 5 through 9, the word for servant was this word diakonos. It's the, same, it's the word that we translate in some places, deacon. So it has a general use of servant. Jesus calls himself a diakonos. Paul calls himself a diakonos. But they're not deacons in the technical sense of a church officer. But it's used later, you know, in Philippians and Timothy of actually a church office. Uh, so he says, um, we are servants, which emphasizes the servant nature of their task. However, the metaphor changes to that of a household. The first word, servants of Christ, is a more general term. You're to regard us as servants of Christ. That's just a general term for a servant. But often refers to one who has the duties of administrating the affairs of another. So it's a general term, but it often kind of has someone who takes care of somebody else's affairs. Thus men like Paul are to be regarded as servants of Christ. Um, Uh, re-emphasizing their humble position, you know, and they belong to Christ. 
But then he says, and those entrusted with the mysteries, with the mysteries God has revealed. And you know, some translations will say, and stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. The NIV has expanded that. So we've got really two words for servants here. We've got a general term. You ought to regard us as servants, which is a general term, but often used close to the sense of a steward. It's, it's close to the idea of someone who's entrusted with the affairs of another. But the second term is, and you also ought to regard us as a steward, someone who is, has the responsibility of taking care of the affairs of someone else. So, uh, I mean, this used to be, you know, say in, even in America, but in, especially in European countries, um, when, or, you know, people were very rich and had large estates, wealthy people, aristocrats, uh, they had stewards. That's still true today. I mean, the king of England has stewards. He has people who watch over his properties and so forth. Uh, when the king, uh, King Charles, was before he, his mother died, he was the Prince of Wales. But another title he had, he got when he was born, was the Duke of Cornwall. And uh, as the Duke of Cornwall, he got that title when he was born. The Duke of Cornwall um, is a title that grants him to be the head over the Duchy of Cornwall. And the Duchy of Cornwall is just a large, vast piece of land in England, thousands of acres that belongs to him, that did belong to him. And he made $15 million a year off that, rents and royalties and so forth. So back, I think, the 13th century or sometime, one of the kings of England wanted to set up a, a way for his son to have money, this, the, the next king. So he, he set up this duchy of Cornwall. And his son is the Duke of Cornwall. So the moment that Prince Charles was born, the Queen Elizabeth, he became the Duke of Cornwall. Though people didn't call him that, you know, he became the Duke of Cornwall. And so he was, he had this duchy. But he didn't really try to run it himself. I mean, exactly. He had stewards. <laughs> he had people who were paid to do that, you know. And now his son immediately becomes the Duke of Cornwall. So he has, he has all kinds of titles. Uh, when he was married, the queen granted him the title Duke of Cambridge. That's common for British royalty. When their sons married, they would give them they give him a duke of something, you know, duke of this, duke of that. And uh, like her son, or the grandson Harry, when he married, he was a duke, he became the duke of Sussex, you know, given that. But So he became duke of Com uh, Cambridge, but he, uh, when his father became king, he immediately became the duke of Cornwall. See, the duke of Cambridge, the duke of Cornwall. And uh, he has, so now his son, and the king granted him the title Prince of Wales, which is a granted title to the heir usually given to him. But he has, he has so he's over that duchy, and he's going to make at least fifteen million dollars a year over that. Now the queen is the queen was the Duke of Lancaster, so she had 
a bunch of land. And now the king, Charles, is the Duke of Lancaster. Also, besides king, he's Duke. And so he has a duchy, and he's got land and properties, and he, he gets money from that and so forth. So, but it's true even among other people there, uh, other earls and dukes and uh, barons, they didn't go out and take care of these thousands of acres. They had a steward that they hired and they paid and, and he took care of this. And his responsibilities were a report to the, whoever his ruler was and to take care of these things. So, uh, I mean, we kind of have, I guess, that kind of thing a little bit, you know, rich people do have people who work for them and manage, you know, manage their wealth and so forth. Well, that's what Paul says, I am. I am really a servant of Christ and a steward who has, my stewardship is the mysteries of God. That is the truth of God. I say mysteries means the revelation of the gospel now known through the Spirit and especially entrusted to the apostles to proclaim. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust, those who are stewards, verse 2, must prove faithful. What's required in those who have been given a trust, that is stewards, is faithfulness. They must be trustworthy. So eloquence is nice, but that's not essential, you know. Wisdom is good, but that's not the most essential thing in a steward. It's faithfulness to the trust. That's what God requires in His servants. And we often apply this to ourselves, too, because... You know, we're not apostles, but we're all, in a sense, stewards. We're representing Christ. Uh, all we have belongs to Him, but He's given us stewardship over all that we have to use for Him and so forth. And, you know, the, the most important requirement is people who are faithful. Um, so, you know, those can be good things. Eloquence is a good thing. Wisdom is a good thing. That's what the Corinthians admired. Those are good things. But faithfulness is essential. And that meant for Paul absolute fidelity to the gospel as he received it and preached it. Um, so the Corinthians shouldn't think that their ministers are responsible to no one. They are responsible. They're stewards. But they're responsible to God for their work. And they have to fulfill the task that's been given to them by God. Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I, don't, I do not even judge myself. Paul now applies the general truth of verse 2. It's required in those who have been given a trust, those who are stewards, to be faithful. Specifically to himself and the Corinthians' attitude toward him. They had been examining him or judging him. For Paul, verse 2 forbids such activity because he's not their steward, he's God's steward. Since the criterion for judgment is faithfulness to a committed trust, only the one who, whom he had received the trust can judge him, not his fellow servants, or in this case, those who might be kind of under him, the Corinthian themselves. Uh, so for Paul, all these merely human judgments against him whether they're of the Corinthians or of any others who may judge him, are, of not, are, are not of primary consequence. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Paul, Paul was not 
unaware of what others thought of him. I mean, you know, and you know, he didn't try to go out of his way to unnecessarily offend people, be mean to people, or offend. I'm just saying, what others thought was not a primary consequence. The only important judgment is the final judgment administered by Christ Himself. Um, and that's true for all of us. You know, think about that verse. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's very easy in life to be more concerned about what other people think of us. And that's not wrong in the sense that, as I say, we want to have a good reputation for, for among other people. We don't want people to think unnecessarily bad things about us. But ultimately, you know, what really counts is what Christ thinks about us. Um, so, so, so much of this is so that Paul says even his own personal judgment is really kind of inconsequential. He says, I don't even judge myself, not because he's irresponsible or uh, he doesn't intend to be irresponsible, uh, but because he's a steward in the service of another. We're stewards like that. We're in the service of another. So his personal evaluations of his own performance are somewhat irrelevant. You know, what his master thinks is what really counts. Um, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm not saying that, that Paul is saying that ministers must never be evaluated or ministers must never be assess, assessed. You know, we know that's not true. Uh, we think of events in the life of the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 2, Paul says when he went to Antioch, he met Peter there, and Peter acted contrary to the gospel. And I had to tell him so. I had to rebuke Peter. So, you know, ministers like that can be criticized and should be, you know, and so forth. Um, and in, you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul will have very harsh judgment about false teachers at Corinth. We have to point out false teaching and false teachers. Um, so Paul's not rejecting any self-evaluations. Um, but the Corinthians were attempting to evaluate the, the effectiveness before God of those like Paul and Apollos who were ministering effectively and, and uh, sincerely. Uh, they were trying to determine the final reward. You know, who is really the best, Paul or Apollos? And that we can't do. Uh, you know, we'll have to leave that to God to determine who gets what, you know, who is rewarded and how God sees things. Um, so they don't have the capacity. We don't have the capacity even. Again, there's, this, there's, a, there's two sides to that. We, can't, we do evaluate misconduct, misdeeds, sin, uh, false teaching, things like that. But ultimately, people who are serving God, if trying to be effective and all that, we have to be careful about rendering harsh judgments. Paul says, my conscience is clear about these things, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Even 
though as Paul evaluates his ministry, he can truthfully say that his conscience is clear, yet that does not necessarily mean that he actually is vindicated or acquitted. Ultimately, it's the Lord who will judge Paul at the judgment seat of Christ. So personal evaluation of his own stewardship is you know, irrelevant in a sense in light of his ultimate accountability to the Lord. Now, Paul's not aware of any breach of duty. He's not aware of anything. He's quick to add, I'm not aware of anything. I don't know of any failure you know, with regard to my stewardship, but that ultimately doesn't mean much. That just puts it back on the, on the level of a merely human court. You know, My conscience is clear, but that doesn't necessarily equip me before God. So that's the, that's, the, that's the conclusion here, which he will say in the following verses. You know, if I don't judge myself, you must stop judging me. You must stop rendering these judgments. Therefore, he says, verse 5, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what's hidden in darkness, will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul brings the discussion of this topic to his conclusion in the form of a strong imperative, judge nothing before the appointed time. By nothing, Paul does not mean that they are to make no judgments. You know, again, there's a balance here. 5.12, he'll say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Aren't you to judge those inside? And the problem in chapter 5 is we'll see they're taking each other to court. And he says, you should be able to handle, you should be able to judge these matters in the church, some of these things, these petty grievances. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, you'll say, I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Um, I'm, that's chapter 6, I'm sorry. Chapter 5 is, is uh, the question of insight. But so he's not, he's not saying that, um, you know, there's no, we don't make judgments at all. Uh, but ultimately, we can't judge a person's <laughs> as far as their service for Christ ultimately, uh, how, you know, how God sees them, how effective. Um, we have to be very careful about those kinds of things. Um, the kinds of judgment they must cease are currently making about, are those making about Paul and his ministry. You know, making these judgments about Paul and his ministry are before the appointed time, when the master of the household will come. The guy... The, the, the master who Paul serves as a steward, he'll hand down the verdict and each one will receive his praise from God at that time. Well, Paul finishes up here with a personal appeal. Uh, he appeals to his own example here. I say he gives some reasons why he's going to appeal to his own example. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one over against, see, there's that antipathy to Paul, over against the other. With this sentence, Paul proceeds to tell the Corinthians why he has been using the various preceding analogies about himself and Paul. It was for your benefit, he tells them, which is then spelled out more fully in the rest of the verse. Paul's main point in this final clause, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one. I am a follower of Apollos. 
over against another, Paul. He says, these things, I have applied these things, refers to the various images that have made up the argument, beginning at 3.5 and continuing to 4.5. Paul has gone from illustration to illustration, changing images as he went, the field, the farm, the building, you know, the steward, but always intending them, as he now says, to apply to myself and Apollos. In other words, in case the Corinthians have somehow missed it, Paul now explicitly tells them that he has been carrying on these arguments with his various images about himself and Apollos so they might learn something and as a result desist from their current, current pride in persons. And what the Corinthians are to learn is don't go beyond what is written. What does Paul mean by that when he says do not go beyond what is written? Most think he means something, the RSV translates this here, Live according to the Scripture. That is, don't, don't, don't go beyond what the Scripture says, but make your judgments and opinions based upon Scripture. And so here Paul is referring, I think, to the previously cited Scripture passages from the Old Testament. Remember he said in 119, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Take that into account. 131, therefore, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 319, as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So what these passages are doing are condemning the boastful pride of the Corinthians. And so the final goal of learning them seems certain. The Corinthians are to stop boasting in the one in such a way as to be over against the other. <clears throat> and here we come to the root of the problem. It seems likely the one is Apollos and the other is Paul. You're boasting in one of us over against the other. And the one is probably Apollos, and the one is Paul. Uh, we said this was natural. Remember, I mentioned in chapter 18 that Paul established the church of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And I think I said last week we would be there, but we had a guest speaker. So I think we'll be there to Sunday, uh, Acts 18. And we'll see this founding of the church at Corinth in Acts 18. But then Paul, after he spends a year and a half there, he leaves. And he takes with him Aquila and Priscilla, whom he met at Corinth. Remember, and he worked with them because they were tent makers or leather workers like he was. And he leaves and they travel over to Ephesus. But he doesn't stay long. He wants to get back to Jerusalem and he leaves them in Ephesus. And while he's there, while he's going back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch, <coughs> Apollos comes to Ephesus. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, an eloquent man, the word is, with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. So this would naturally be 
you know, he would be very appealing to the Corinthians because he was apparently trained in rhetoric, the ability to speak. And as I say, we don't put much, we don't put, put much emphasis on that today, you know. It's not required in politicians. This poor guy from Pennsylvania, this senator they talked about last night from Pennsylvania who had the stroke. It's, you know, I saw a few clips from that, and it's pitiful. It's just pitiful. It's really pitiful. And, uh, but they say, another thing I was thinking, they say this in the Arizona race. I, they say this Republican woman who's running, I don't want to get into politics here, but they say she's got some very wacky views, but whatever. But she is a TV and radio person. She was a TV and radio personality. So she is just a tremendous on the stump speaker. She can just speak effectively, and, and, and that's just really elevated her, you know. So it's helpful, <laughs> you know, if you can speak well and make arguments and all that kind of stuff, it'll help you as a politician. Well, it was essential in the ancient world. You wouldn't get anywhere if you couldn't do that. And it looks like Paul, though being a very obviously intelligent person, a very brilliant guy, it appears like he, he wasn't really a great eloquent speaker you know, compared to, say, Apollos was. So you can see where the Corinthians and their background and culture, they're just naturally attracted to a guy like that. You know, he's, he's our man. He's our kind of guy. So, uh, so, uh, so, so Paul is bringing that to a head here. Uh, he's taking on their pride that's exhibited in their being opposed to him. Are they greater than Paul who calls himself a servant? Verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? See, he's taking on their pride. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And that's true, you know, for all of us as individuals. You know, the intelligence we have, the abilities we have are really gifts of God. They're just really, you know, some people are born with 140 IQ, you know. And if you're born with 100 IQ, you can't get to 140 IQ, you know. And that's just the way it is. It's just not, just not going to happen. You're born with certain gifts and abilities. You use them to the best you can. And that's all the Lord expects of us. But they're, they're obviously... Uh, elevating people above what they should be. Um, so what did you receive? What did you boast as though you received that you did not? The four that connects the questions with verse 6, the four who makes you different, indicates that Paul's about to give reasons why those who are puffed up against him are wrong. Their pride in persons reflects a lack of proper perspective, a lack of gratitude. With these questions, Paul's trying to give them a proper perspective. There's some debate how to translate the first question, which in the NIV reads, who makes you different from anyone else? The question is directly related to verse 6 and their pride in relation to Paul. The question means kind of literally who distinguishes you or who concedes you any superiority. So Paul is asking the Corinthians, on what possible grounds are they boasting in this matter? The implication is that their boasting in wisdom, which allows them to examine Paul, is self-proclaimed. I mean, the English equivalent would be something like, who in the world do you think you are? You know, anyway. 
you know, what kind of delusion is it that allows you to think that you are in a position to judge another person's servant? Um, so the first question here is, is Paul is marking out, pointing out their presumption. They're presumptuous here. The second question marks their attitudes ungrateful. Who makes you different from anyone else? You're presumptuous. Who, who, what do you have you didn't receive? This marks them as ungrateful. If we're honest, we'll recognize that everything that one has is a gift. All is grace, you know. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. Uh, that's a good kind of thing to remember. All is of grace. Everything we have is the grace of God. Nothing is deserved, and nothing is earned. Uh, so those like the Corinthians who, who think of them as especially gifted of God with the Spirit and wisdom, which enables them to judge another, reflect a total misunderstanding of grace. I say in this case, the Corinthians missed the point. Paul drives the second question home with the third, which assumes the answer Nothing to the second. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Their boasting is sure evidence that they've missed the gospel of grace. Instead of recognizing everything as a gift and being filled with gratitude, they possessed their gifts. They saw them as their own. They looked down on the apostle who seemed to lack so much. So grace leads to gratitude, but wisdom and self-sufficiency leads to boasting and judging. Grace means humility, and boasting means that one has arrived. So Paul will now turn to irony, irony, to help them see the folly of their boasting. Paul's appeal to his experience as an apostle. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. As a contrast to the attitude of gratitude and humility urged by the rhetorical questions in verse 7, Paul now begins a series of contrasts between the Corinthians and himself to which shame is the only suitable response. That is, they should be ashamed of themselves. With three short sentences, Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. The words are full of biting irony, attacking their own view of themselves, and not just their pride in general, but especially their view of spirituality, which reflects an over-realized eschatology. Okay, I want to talk about that over-realized eschatology again. But let me just look at this word irony when I say Paul is speaking ironically. That is when he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. He's, it's not true. So irony has two basic meanings. There's what we might call an ironic situation. This is a combination of circumstances on a result that is the opposite of what this 
what, or what is or what might be expected or considered appropriate. So we can have an ironic situation. The irony that the firehouse burned down. So we, some might say, hey, the firehouse burned down. Oh, we'd say, isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? But somebody might say, it's ironic because of all places, <laughs> the firehouse burning down, you know, that shouldn't be the last place to burn down. It's the opposite of what we would expect. What we have here is we might call ironic speech, where we mean the opposite. A method of humorous or subtly sarcastic expression in which the intended meaning of the words used is the opposite, direct opposite of the usual sense. The irony of calling a stupid plan clever. I mean, somebody might say to somebody, they might say something and say, oh, that's clever. They don't really mean it's clever. They just mean it's stupid, you know. Oh, that's clever. So light irony of this kind is a kind of a form of humor. But severe irony is usually a form that's called sarcasm. So when irony gets very, uh, when, it, when, it's, when it's very severe, it's called sarcasm or satire. And that's what we have in verse 8. Paul is being sarcastic. You have all you want. You have become rich. You have begun to reign. Not without us. This is all ironic. And it represents their over-realized eschatology. So, um, remember I said that, we talked about this before, that there is something some people call realized eschatology. That's, I, guess we, I guess I need to explain that to understand over-realized eschatology, but realized eschatology, mean, remember eschatology means the future. The doctrine of eschatology is the doctrine of eschatos, last things, future things, prophetic things. So it seems like sometimes the Bible says, it's like we're experiencing these things right now. God set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So we're realizing right now some of the benefits of eternal life and the salvation we're going to enjoy. It's like a down payment. We're realizing part of it, you know, but we're not, we don't have all of it, you know. We don't, we don't really have the fullness of what God has for us. Our Colossians, since you have been raised with Christ, you've been set your hearts on things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You've been raised with Christ. Well, not literally yet, <laughs> not literally, but we're experiencing, we, we experience in, in the blessings of salvation some of these things already. We, we kind of realize when we talked about eternal life. If you believe Christ, you'll have eternal life. I have, et I have eternal life. Well, if you felt like my body did, <laughs> you wouldn't say it's very good life. You know, it, it's, it, but it is eternal life. I'm going to live forever, but it's going to be with a glorified body and all that. So I'm experiencing some of the aspects now. But we said, you know, the problem with our Pentecostal brethren is that they, they're, it's over-realized. That is, you can get, you can think, well, I should be able to get that healing right now. You know, I should have a good body right now. If I really have faith, then I can have that same body right now and right now. I don't have to be sick. I don't have to have, you know, that's over-realized eschatology. And this is what Paul is saying here. Oh, you have all you want. Yeah, you, you're, you, you're rich. You've begun to reign. Well, that's sarcasm. It's not really true, but they're so boastful. They're so prideful that, you know, you just, you're just, but here's what it's really like, he's going to say. Let me just tell you what it's really like. 
I go hungry. I go thirsty. You know, I don't sleep sometimes. And I'll, you know, he'll talk about his life as an apostle, what life is really like. But I see the time is up here, so we'll stop here for this time and we'll pick this up next week. All right. Thanks.